Good evening. Thank you, Kelsey. Did a great job. We're working our way through the McKissick family. I guess Martin here next week. <laughs> no. Take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes. That's not one of the more the easier books to find. If you find the book of Psalms, which most of us can find fairly easily, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. As I looked at uh, what I wanted to preach as a new series, I was somewhat amazed to discover that I have never preached through the book of Ecclesiastes in the 30 years that I've been here. In fact, after a closer examination, I discovered that in that 30 years, I have preached exactly two messages from Ecclesiastes. Well, by God's grace, we'll rectify that tonight. Oh, by the way, happy anniversary. You may not have known it, but we've been together for 30 years now. In January of 1986, I became your pastor. It's been a longer run than I anticipated. I, uh, I was a young man when I came here. I'm no longer a young man. I have to pray for Voin and Les so that I'm not the oldest Perhaps part of the hesitation of preaching uh, through Ecclesiastes is the book seems to take such a gloomy view of life. One commentator says, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on Monday morning. I can kind of understand that. Tonight will be principally an introduction and an overview, and we will cover the first 11 verses of chapter number 1. So the first correction you need to make on your outline is it is not chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The term Ecclesiastes stems from the title given to it in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek term ekklesias means preacher. And it is derived from ecclesia, which is not a church building, but a congregation or an assembly of people for the purpose of the worship of God. The Hebrew title is koheleth. Koheleth is a rare term. It's used only seven times in Ecclesiastes. It comes from the word kohila, meaning to convoke an assembly or to assemble. It means one who addresses a symbol, or once again, it means a preacher. That is the title that he gives to himself. First thing I want to deal with this, this evening is the author of the book. Though some modern scholars believe elsewise, I believe that the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba the widow of Uriah, the general who was murdered on the orders of David the king. Solomon ruled Israel as king for 40 years in peace and prosperity. Solomon had a great beginning. He began as a young king, and as a young king, God appeared to him in a dream. It's recorded in 1 Kings 3, verse 5. 
And God said to him, Ask what you wish of me to give to you. Solomon responded by saying that God had already blessed him by allowing him to follow his father as king. But knowing the immense responsibility that he had, he said in verse 9, Give thy servant an understanding to judge thy people to discern between good and evil. That answer pleased God. And because he could have asked for anything, and he asked for wisdom. In verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 3, God responds by saying, Because you have asked these things, and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of, for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there be any that arise after you. So Solomon began with a great start. He turned to God and he said, more than riches and all of the things that this world has to offer, I want wisdom. Had he stayed with that, he would have been a much happier man. But what we do see is a downward spiral. Solomon's downward spiral begins with compromise and rationalization. Although the Israelites had been specifically warned against intermarriage with unbelievers, we find in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 1 that he took an Egyptian wife for political purposes. He rationalized that this was good because this marriage was good for the country. Solomon took his wife to the city of Jerusalem where the temple was already under construction. But because the temple was not yet finished, the people sacrificed as their neighbors did on the high places where the pagans made their sacrifices. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 3 tells us that Solomon sacrificed there as well. Solomon's spiritual decline was also evidenced in his personal relationships. Hiram, king of Tyre, provided significant labor and materials for the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And Solomon repaid him by giving him 20 worthless cities in Galilee. You can find that in 1 Kings 9, 10 through 13. In effect, he insulted and cheated this old friend of his father. Solomon's life became marked by exorbitant living, according to 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon also amassed a harem of foreign wives, some 700 wives and 300 concubines. And these wives contributed to his spiritual decline as he is led away by the idolatry of his foreign-born wives. The second thing that I want you to see about Ecclesiastes, and this is always a very difficult thing for me to start a new series. How much background do you give and how much do, before you bore everything, everybody to death? And, but still, you need to know a little bit. And how much do you cover in the first thing? 
But I want us to look at the perspective that Solomon gives us about life. He tells us life is fleeting. Solomon began with such great promise. He had great gifts of wisdom and discernment and riches and honor. And yet toward the end of his life, he wrote in first chapter 1 and verse 2, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now, vain is one of those words that has changed its meaning over the years. When I say somebody is vain, what do you think? Or I say there is vanity involved. I usually think that that person is conceited, that they're very concerned about their looks. But that's not at all what this verse means. This, although is often translated as meaningless and empty, but taken literally, the, the Hebrew word, hevel, translated vanity, refers to life as a vapor or as a puff of smoke rising from a chimney or a cloud of steam that comes from hot breath on a frosty morning. Life is like that. It is elusive. So when you see the word vanity, you ought to think transitory because that really is what Solomon is saying. The Apostle James said something similar when he described life. In James chapter 4, verse 14, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. According to the psalmist, we are a mere breath. Psalm 39, verse 5, and our days vanish like a breath, Psalm 78, verse 3. So in every place that your Bible translation speaks of vanity or meaningless, we can substitute the idea of vapor or transitory. So when Solomon speaks of youth, it is not vanity, but it is passing. You don't stay young forever. When he speaks of work, it is not vanity, but it is passing. It is not that work is meaningless. It is that it is passing or transitory. Vanity speaks of the futile emptiness of trying to be happy apart from God. Solomon liked this word. In fact, he used it 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes as he wrote about life under the sun. From the human point of view, it does appear that life is futile. It's easy to get pessimistic. I once saw a bumper sticker that read, Work, eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep, and then you die. Not a very pleasant thought. The American poet Carl Sandburg compared life to an onion. You peel one layer at a time and sometimes you weep pretty accurate. How this happened is chronicled by Solomon himself because he is the author of three of the books in the Bible, and he wrote them at different time periods in his life. As a young man, he wrote the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. It is a romantic love story of one man and one woman, a groom and a bride. In his middle years, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, which is bits of practical wisdom. The elderly Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, 
when he was old and confused and empty, having discovered that the things of this world do not satisfy. Ecclesiastes is essentially Solomon's memoir, an autobiographical account of what he learned from his futile attempt to live without God. Fortunately for us, it doesn't end that way because in in chapters 11 and 12, we will discover that Solomon did discover the purpose for life. But for our study today, life without God has no purpose. A reoccurring phrase in Ecclesiastes is the phrase under the sun, which occurs almost 30 times as he describes the absurdity and the futility of work and wisdom and pleasure and everything else, he says, this is what things are like under the sun. In other words, this is what life is like when viewed from a purely human perspective. Ecclesiastes gives us a true assessment of what life is like apart from the grace of God. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, this man, Solomon, had been living through all these experiences under the sun, concerned with nothing above the sun, until there came a moment in which he had seen the whole of life and there was nothing under the sun. It is only as a man takes account of that which is over the sun as well as that which is under the sun that things under the sun are seen in their true light. So what's the relevance of this book for us today. Well, it reads almost like our daily newspaper. He, write, he writes about the injustice to the poor in chapter 4. He talks about crooked politics in chapter 5. He talks about incompetent leaders in chapter 10. He talks about guilty people being allowed to commit more crimes in chapter 8. And he talks about materialism in chapter 5, Forbes magazine devoted its 75th anniversary issue to a single topic. The topic was why we feel so bad when we have it so good. Noting that Americans live better than any other people on the planet, why then are they so depressed? Ecclesiastes addresses the question that people always have. What is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? Those are the kinds of questions, kind of intellectual and practical questions that Koheleth wants us to ask. He goes on to say that life is unoriginal and repetitive, or if you want to put it very succinctly, nothing new. There's nothing new, even though Buddy's sitting on this side of the auditorium, he thinks that's new. But people have sat on that side of the auditorium before, so it's not new. You haven't sat there, but others have. Now, Solomon explains why life leaves us breathless and is so frustrating. He says in verse 3, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? 
He says that life is full of labor and toil. Both of those are good words. They're indicating the process of work. At the end of the day, what do you have to show for all of your labor? You sleep a few hours and you start it all over again. Here's the point. We work our whole lives and what do we have to show for it? What is left over? All the labor a man does under the sun. This term, like I said, is used 29 times. He says that the truth is the same for every generation. Verse number 4 says one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Forever. Every day, 11,000 people, give or take a few, are born in America. Every day, 6,775 people die in America, give or take a few. And yet every generation is the same. Every generation comes along saying, we're going to get it right. We're going to fix things. We're going to make this world a better place. One generation comes and another goes, but they really face the same issues and the same problems, and there is no utopia. Solomon is saying that earth is like an exercise bike. You get on, and then you go nowhere. In fact, going nowhere is part of the design. The point is not to get somewhere. The point is to expend as much energy as possible for as long as possible while you're going nowhere. Every time you step off the treadmill or the bike, you are in the same place as where you began. As one generation dies, another is born, and they hop on the bike. They pedal like crazy until they fall over and die. And the next generation hops onto the bike, determined to pedal even harder. Sometimes we mistake movement for progress, but it is not really progress. It could be argued, but, but, but we have had advanced in quantum leaps in technology, which is true. But we have the same problems with man. Mankind is still characterized by lust and greed and selfishness. Mankind is not getting any better. Prior to World War I, there was this idea that man was getting better and better. But after World War I, most people gave up on the thought that man is getting better and better. Man is not getting better and better. He's getting, he is declining, not progressing. They're getting more evil. They're getting more per, perverse than ever. Solomon tells us to take our clues from the earth, wind, and fire and Verse 5, he says, the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. That word hastens in Hebrew is an interesting word. It actually means pants, as if the sun itself was getting tired of going around and around and around. The wind, verse 6, goes toward the south and turns toward the north and the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. 
So Solomon uses the example of the sun and the wind and the rivers to illustrate the repetitiveness of life. Let's just examine one of those, the rivers, for example. For example, the Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico flows into the Atlantic Ocean, but the ocean never overflows, and it never gets any deeper as a result. Or for an example that maybe uh, Solomon had in mind was the example of the Dead Sea close to where he lived. The Jordan River continually flows into the Dead Sea, and there is no outlet to the the Dead Sea, and yet the Dead Sea never gets full, and it never overflows. It never gets to the place that it is completely full. We think we're making such a difference, but the reality is the earth remains the same, and we die. Life is not moving is not moving linear in a line. No, life is going around in circles in the sense that we're born on the earth, we live, we die, we go back into the earth. The sun rises, the sun sets, and it's another day and another day to work. It is the nature of life that when our focus is under the sun, that is on our earthly experience, we find that it is a continual a continual grind. One of the modern philosophers wrote, so you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking and racing around to cup up again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older and shorter of breath and one day closer to death. It was written by the great philosopher Pink Floyd in 1978. If you're not in my generation, you have no idea who Pink Floyd is. That's your assignment for tonight, youth, to find out who Pink Floyd is. But what, it, what they said in that song, which it was the dark side of the moon, is true. Jeremiah, however, gives us another perspective in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23. The sun rising every morning reminds us of the faithfulness of God. He tells us that the mercies of God are new every morning. The answers to life are found above the sun, not under the sun. And when my focus is under the sun, here on the earth, life tends to be a rut. You ladies know that no matter how efficiently you wash your family's clothes, they will not stay clean. But you will have it all to do over again next week. One writer said it this way, The straight life of a homemaker is washing dishes, it's cleaning sinks, scouring toilets, and waxing floors. It's chasing toddlers and mediating fights between preschool siblings. The straight life is driving your station wagon to school and back 23 times per week. It is grocery shopping and baking cupcakes for your youngsters' school party. The straight life eventually means being the parent of an ungrateful teenager, which I assure you is no job for sissies. It's difficult to let your adolescence find himself, especially when you know he isn't even looking. Certainly, the straight life for the homemaker can be an exhausting experience at times. The straight life for a working man is not much simpler. 
It's pulling your tired frame out of bed five days a week, 50, years out of the, 50 weeks out of the year. It's earning a two-week vacation in August and choosing a trip that will please the kids. The straight life is spending your money wisely when you'd rather engage and indulge in a new whatever. But you're taking your son on a bike ride on Saturday when you would so badly like to watch the baseball game. It's cleaning out the garage on your day off after walking, working 60 hours that week. It's taking your family to church on Sunday when you heard every idea the pastor's ever had. It's giving a portion of your income to God's work when you already wonder how you're going to make ends meet. The straight life for the ordinary garden variety husband and father is everything I've listed and much, much more. He's telling us that it can be very difficult. We also need to understand that no one remembers Verse number 8, all things are full of labor, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, that which is done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it can be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before. There is no remembrance of foreign things, nor will there be any remembrance of the things that are to come by those who come after. If it seems like there really is something new under the sun, it is really only because we have forgotten what happened before. Do you remember the 1972 Super Bowl? Who was a winner? Dwayne Thomas was asked afterwards, how did it feel to win the ultimate game? But is it really the ultimate game if you play it again next year? The problem is that we don't really learn from history. If we did, we would realize there really is nothing new. Everything comes back around. Let me give you some advice. Hang on to your old, out-of-style clothes. Because fashion will come back again, and they will be back in style. We don't know history, and so we repeat the same old things. We, we want to argue, but look at the progress that man has made. We've, we've put a man on the moon. We have computers that can do amazing things. But again, the problem is that man is still the same. He's still greedy and selfish and prideful. We wrestle with the same issues and problems. They're just a little bit more sophisticated. Now it is porn on the internet rather than just in magazine form. Now it is people having an emotional affairs via computers with people they've never met. But there really is nothing under the sun that is new. Some of, some of you by this point are saying, now this is a depressing Bible study. Thanks so much. Is it depressing or is it just honest? Solomon does a great service here because he picks up the most popular things 
that we try to find purpose in and find meaning and value in life. And he pursues those things with unparalleled energy. Now, you don't have this on your outline, so if you want this, you will have to write it down. One of those is money. Every year, as Solomon was king, ships, fleets of ships, brought gold, payments from other kings to Solomon. Solomon was perhaps the richest man on earth, maybe even in the history of man. But that didn't do it. Some people still live in that myth. If I could just make more money, I'd be happy. But some of you are making more than you ever dreamed, and you still need more. Secondly, power. For 40 years, Solomon reigned as king, one of, if not the most, powerful kings on earth. Israel reached zenith under his rule and increased both in its territory and its power, but he found no satisfaction in being powerful. We might also look at religion and our spirituality. Some people will tell you today, I'm a religious person or I'm a spiritual person. That really doesn't mean a lot. It seems as if Solomon dabbled into everything. That with each new foreign wife he added, he also added a different god or goddess as well. We could also speak about his career achievements. He was a builder extraordinaire. History tells us that the queen of Sheba from Ethiopia traveled 1,500 miles just to see his kingdom. He built palaces and ships and greenhouses and gardens. And perhaps most impressive of all, he built the temple in Jerusalem. But he found no satisfaction. He also excelled in education and wisdom. Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,500 songs. He pursued wisdom and education with an unbated enthusiasm. And yet Solomon found no fulfillment in any of these. Let me make two deductions, if I might. If there is nothing but nothing under the sun, our only hope must be above it. And if the man who had everything and investigated everything visible says that it is all empty, then the only thing that we need must be invisible. So is there any way to get off of this treadmill, off of this exercise bike? Is there any alternative? Well, St. Augustine suggested there is when he wrote, He who has God has everything. And he who does not have God has nothing. And he who has God in everything has no more than he had when he had God alone. Solomon concluded that life under the sun had no purpose. But God says that life is full of purpose. Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians 
In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Remember, this life is not our final existence. We are made for a better world. The very fact that we are weary of this life is pointing us to the fact that only God can satisfy our souls. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that although there's a lot of repetition in this life and there is real no purpose in this life apart from you, there is purpose in this life in serving you. Solomon seemed to have spent a great deal of his life coming to the understanding that without you, there was no purpose. May we not fall into the same trap that he did and waste much of our lives seeking after the things of this world only. And help us to realize that we have been built for a better world. We have been designed by you for eternal life with you. And so, Lord, help us to truly find our satisfaction in you. Solomon would go on to tell us that life is good and that we should enjoy life while we have it, but that we should not find our purpose in this life, but find our purpose in living this life for you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.